to be honest, I don't know if you agree with this, but like the majority of big companies, like they're looking for some kind of pixie dust or something magical to happen from the startup ecosystem. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we're going to take a fun, different approach as we meet with Scott Kersner, who is the CEO and co-founder of Innovation Leader. Scott, welcome to uh, the show. Thanks for inviting me on, Dave. Awesome. Well, I want to dive in right talk about your background, because you actually come from the world of journalism, spent 20 years on that kind of side of the house before making the switch over to Innovation Leader, that is journalism and then some. So what made you lead from going journalism to entrepreneur? Well, journalism is a lot of fun, and I, I was doing a lot of writing about startup companies as they kind of spun out of universities like MIT and Stanford, and then also innovation in bigger companies, you know, in terms of R&D activities or new product development in all kinds of Fortune 500 companies. And I was having a really good time doing that, and I think the transition was just about working for a lot of media outlets that really weren't evolving or innovating fast enough, you know, and seeing that struggle to kind of make the business model change and adapt the way that it needed to in a more digital era. And so kind of wanting to have my hands at the controls a little bit more. And I think my two co-founders, Scott Cohen and Frank Hertz, felt the same way of like, let's build a new media startup that can cover the arena of innovation inside large organizations so that we had control and could experiment the way that we wanted to. I love that. And so, as you said, you created Innovation Leader really for those people leading innovation at big companies in the Fortune 500s. The offerings you have are really, really diverse, though. You do peer learnings, you do workshops, you do podcasts, you do a little bit of everything. Can you talk about what all those offerings are that you guys offer? Yeah, I could try. Um, there are a lot of them. I mean, we the, the key organizing principle is that Everything we do is for people inside large companies who are trying to make some kind of change happen. And when we define large companies, for us, it's anything with, you know, more than 500 employees. And sometimes it's companies that are 10 years old or more. They start to get a little established and set in their ways. It's definitely not for startups. We felt like there was enough stuff out there for entrepreneurs working at the five-person startup. And so the range of stuff we do is generally fits into two buckets. One is in-person events where we do gatherings of anywhere from 12 corporate innovators in a room up to about 350 at our biggest annual gathering, which is called Impact. And then we also create content. And so that can be quarterly research reports. It's a print magazine that we do. It's our podcast, Innovation Answered. And it's all kinds of articles and case studies and resources that we try to create on our website. So let's talk about that, uh, your most recent quarterly report, because I think it's really relevant to the subjects we talk about in predicting the turn. So this one was about startup engagement, and you had a lot of great things in that. And one of the things the report found was that big companies generally focus on kind of five big buckets that go into startup engagement. What are those and what did you find? Well, I think that when they have a rational approach to startup yeah. engagement, they focus on kind of these five big ideas. But to be honest, I don't know if you agree with this, but like the majority of big companies, like they're looking for some kind of pixie dust or something yeah. magical to happen from the startup ecosystem. And probably they're not exactly sure what it is or how to get that. Like maybe you invite some startups into your company to pitch 
or you go to a demo day or some kind of startup, you know, tech crunch disrupt kind of competition. So I wouldn't say every big company has figured out these five things, but generally we talk about strategy and, you know, how is this startup engagement going to create some value for your company? The second thing is people. Like, do you have some people who are going to be the point of contacts and are going to be responsible for going around the country or sometimes going around the world and, and sourcing relevant startups? The third is tactics is, are you going to have a corporate venture fund? Are you going to have a hackathon or a demo day or some kind of presentation maybe at, at your company's offices? The fourth thing is interface. You know, how do these startups that you're going to work with, either as investments or maybe just as partners, how are they going to interface with the different parts of your business and maybe do a pilot test or maybe do a distribution test in stores if it's a physical product? And the fifth thing is having some kind of metrics or milestones for figuring out, are you making progress and is this creating any value? Or are you just taking a lot of meetings and putting on a lot of events that have like the, you know, the pixie dust effect, the glam effect of making it seem like, oh, this company is somehow intangibly more innovative than they were last year when they didn't do any startup engagement. I love that. And, you know, so related to that is uh, one of my favorite quotes in the report was from a cor- former uh, corporate development leader who said, you know, startups come up and they question all of your industry's traditional processes and practices, and they come up with new ones. Most of the time they turn out to be wrong, but sometimes they turn out to very be very right, and then they eat into your business. Do you think enough big companies really have that practical mindset that it's not about every startup being right, but the ones that are right cause you massive amounts of pain? Yeah, I, I like that quote a lot too, and I do think you see this phenomenon. The guy who, who who mentioned that to us, a lot of times you get quotes from people who are formerly at big companies and now they're not anymore, so they can tell you the real story. So yeah, this is a guy who had, this is a guy who'd been VP of corporate development and he was uh, and also head of innovation for Gallery Lafayette, which is this French retail company that's hundred plus years old. And they did an accelerator program in partnership with Plug and Play that was focused on retail and e-commerce startups based in Paris. And you know, so I think he was speaking the truth that it's not every startup in the world that's going to disrupt you tomorrow, but it's a few select startups that can get that can sort of dismantle little parts of your business that might be very profitable. And I think the phenomenon you see in a lot of big companies is not that they're not aware that there are startups eating away at parts of their business, but they think like, oh, it's so small. Like that's just five people at a WeWork and they have probably sub million dollar a year revenues. And so we'll watch it for a while and they watch it and watch it and watch it. And then eventually it becomes big enough that either it's a real competitor to part of their business or they're forced to acquire it, you know, and suddenly it becomes a $250 million problem or a $500 million problem versus maybe something that you could have partnered with or collaborated with or invested in and, you know, not had to pay such a big price to own it at some point, or maybe have a competitor pay a huge price and own it. Yeah. So day-to-day in Innovation Leader, you talk with a ton of innovators that are leading the day-to-day efforts at their companies trying to respond to this. And you did the same thing with this report. What do you think are some of the most provocative things that you learned in this study that maybe were different or eye-opening versus some of the other work you've had in the past? Well, that's such a good question, Dave. I mean, I think that um, one of the things is that big companies take a lot of meetings with startups. So that wasn't super eye-opening. But 
this kind of was surprising just because I hadn't seen this data before. But a lot of them would admit that they don't really have a clear point of contact for like, who is the startup concierge or the startup ambassador at your company? So we had like more than 50% of respondents in this survey that we did in Q1 of, of 2019, basically say like, I'm not sure, or we don't yet have, or we don't have a clear point of contact for interacting with the startup ecosystem. And I guess the last thing that was surprising was we had 38% of the respondents of the survey say, we don't have any metrics yet for gauging whether this stuff is creating any value or we're making any progress. And, yep. you know, we could talk more about that, but I think that's a problem, particularly if companies are investing significant resources in a corporate venture capital initiative, or maybe they're sponsoring an accelerator with plug and play or tech stars or whomever. Yeah. Well, I think that key point of contact, it's such an interesting one because you see if they do an accelerator, they might have the person that owns that relationship, but then there's the corporate VC, but then there's the person that's in each business unit that's doing it. And none of them necessarily even are talking to each other. Mm -hmm. But to us as outsiders, that company, we look and go, well, you're one company. Yeah. Why do you have these eight disparate people that don't even know who each other are? And Right. And they all have weird different titles. Like there's no standard title that's like the ambassador for startup engagement. Like it'd be great if, if a startup could just look up on LinkedIn and see like, oh, Dave is the ambassador for startup engagement at Company X. Yep. I know what to do with that. Yeah. That's perfect. At Predicting the Turn, we talk a lot about growth challenges facing business leaders today. And as we talk about growth, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Chinatown Bureau. Chinatown Bureau is a consumer experience firm solely focused on driving brand growth. They move brands beyond advertising towards a new brand growth playbook. They do this by building the strategies and technology tools that make each customer relationship as valuable as possible streamlining operations and creating new revenue opportunities. Their clients are Fortune 500s and high growth startups alike, and their engagements range from strategy development through full implementation of a new consumer experience. If you're experiencing slow brand growth and looking for a better solution beyond just advertising, visit ChinatownBureau.com to schedule a call today. So, you know, talk about innovation. One of the things you dove into was the whole concept of core adjacent and transformational innovation. And, you know, that's a pretty common model that a lot of folks look at. But one of the things that was interesting, you found that 40% of the companies that are in this report were only doing core innovation. And then you had another facet that we're looking at all, you know, kind of doing all three. Do you think it's wrong for somebody to focus just on core innovation or should they be focusing on all three buckets of those? I think, you know, every company is so unique that it's hard to have like a blanket answer that works mm -hmm. for, for every company. Like we definitely have talked to some companies where that will say like just in our culture, you can do incremental innovation in the business units where they're constantly looking to improve. And maybe you can do some adjacent innovation of looking for sort of customer bases that are kind of similar to customer bases you serve today or new distribution channels for existing products or ways to adapt to existing products. And we just, we can't really get the institutional support for doing transformational innovation. So I think academically you would say like, oh yeah, every company should have a portfolio approach with, with all three of those things. But frankly, you know, transformational innovation may be one of those things where you're you know, you are partnering with consulting firms or these startup studios or individual startups 
to really think through some of those 10 year away, you know, or seven year away business models that might just get killed by the politics of your own company if you try to do it at headquarters or with full time company employees. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So you mentioned the thing that you were surprised on was all the meetings that a lot of these corporates take. In that same kind of question, one of the things that jumped out to me was around the activity of mergers and acquisitions and corporate VC. Mm -hmm. I think it was only 40% of the respondents said that they had a corporate VC group and only like 30% said they'd done M&A. Yeah. That seems surprisingly low in the world that we're in. So did that shock you from a number standpoint? Well, I mean, it might have been biased by the sample set that we have, which is largely like people who are in innovation or R&D groups and and not as much people who are in corporate strategy or corporate development or M&A types of roles. So they may not see some of it. But I don't know. I I think corporate venture is still a pretty rare activity if you looked at a lot of mid-market size companies and even some Fortune 500 companies just don't don't believe in it or they did it five years ago and then they killed it and maybe it'll come back. You know, it has this cyclicality in a lot of big companies. And the M&A thing, I don't know. I think they're in tech, you see a lot of M&A. And so if you follow the big tech companies like Google or IBM or Salesforce or whatever, you see them doing M&A all the time. And then I think Outside of tech and maybe outside of life sciences, I think it's a little bit rarer of a thing. You know, people are just maybe more focused on, you know, the block and tackling of building their business. And certain industries, you don't see a lot of startups that are acquirable. You know, M&A is like it happens once a decade kind of thing. And it's like, oh, we've we've sort of put together the deal to buy one of our, you know, biggest distributors in China or whatever it may be. Yeah, no, that makes great point. Yeah, the one thing in M&A that I think intrigued me, and I'm curious if you see this as a trend, is, you know, we saw Edgewell just do the purchase of Harry's, and we saw Jet.com and uh, Bonobos both end up at Walmart. And the common thread of those wasn't just the brands, Mm -hmm. but it's actually the people, the founders end up in very senior leadership roles. Yeah. You know, Edgewell named the two co-founders of Harry's to be co-presidents. Yeah. Do you think that's a trend we're going to see more and more of, of, it's almost executive acquire. Yeah, I think those are two really good examples. I think sometimes it winds up being short-term executive acquire where you yep. get somebody for maybe a year or two and then they just get tired of playing the big company politics. But I think if those ones work out and so far the a lot of the Walmart acquisitions do seem to be working out. You know, they seem to be it's like this injection of some new DNA into the company and it seems to be sticking, which is interesting. And so I think we'll probably see, we'll probably see some more of that. I haven't totally followed what's happened like at Dollar Shave Club since the Unilever acquisition. I think sometimes it turns out to be geographically a little bit weird where Unilever is in the UK, I think, or in the Netherlands and Dollar Shave Club was in Southern California. So there are lots of, you know, lots of reasons that that can't work. But I think Those are a lot of good examples where, hey, it was a much more digitally native company, and often they were experimenting with a new business model that the acquiring company didn't really understand or hadn't succeeded at. So I think it'll succeed in probably 20 or 25% of the cases, and then in 70 or 75, you know, it'll be the typical acquisition where, like, it just, you know, all the hope for synergies and benefits don't really play out. 
So one of the really kind of big trends we've seen over the last few years is the rise of accelerators and incubators. And, you know, something I saw firsthand as one of the co-founders of the brandery. What surprised me is how many corporations are really diving in and getting involved in mentorship, participation, and even sponsorship of these accelerators. Why do you think that's become such a popular model for corporates to almost put their first toe in the water, if you will? I don't know why it's, I mean, I think trendiness, I think lemming, the lemming phenomenon of like, yep. you know, once you had a couple big companies, you know, initially it was like companies like Microsoft and Nike that started to do the first accelerators. And then you had some other tech companies jump on board. And I think now it's become such a packaged offering that it sort of presents this like, just add water and you'll have exposure to what's happening in the startup world. Like I would posit that there's sort of two weaknesses to the incubator or sort of the accelerator model. One is like, are you really attracting the best startups in your defined space, whatever it is, if it's retail or it's robotics or whatever, or are the best startups just doing their own thing and they're in London or New York or Los Angeles and much like Dollar Shave Club, like they're building their own company and they kind of don't care about the big company relationship or the $30,000 of seed funding that they're going to get. So thing one is like, are you getting the best startups at your accelerator? And thing two is, is that I do believe that interesting startups in most industries are pretty geographically dispersed. And so that idea that we're going to just take one geography and say, let's see that we could get, if we could get the best startups in the world to come to Minneapolis to hang out with Target for 12 weeks or Southern California to hang out with Disney for 12 weeks. I'm not sure I, you know, again, that's sort of tied to like, are you getting the best startups? But really, I think the the harder thing about startup engagement is that it is a pretty global game and you could easily name 10 or 12 cities in the world where you probably should be looking in most industries. And the accelerator thing just feels to me, you know, it can be valuable, but I think sometimes it's a little bit too easy, you know, like, oh, we'll just bring the startups to our city, to our corporate headquarters, and we'll have complete visibility into every possible future of our industry and every possible new player that's going to matter. And I don't, I don't think that's true. I think it's a little bit oversold. Yeah. Well, it goes back to the pixie dust that uh, you comment on the very first uh, question. So one of the common truths of big corporations is everything's got to be measured and ROI and metrics. Yet your report found that the number one thing that corporates weren't doing was actually 40% of them had zero metrics when it came to their startup engagement. How do you think that happened in a world that is so driven on metrics? I don't know. I mean, in a way, I feel like it's a positive thing. If you're trying to do something new in the company and really like break some new ground, you know, machete your way through the jungle, should you be measured on how many miles did you go every day? Because who knows how thick the jungle is and how many days you're going to be there. And eventually you find a tool better than a machete and you get a, you know, I don't know, flamethrower or what yeah. would be the right thing for that metaphor? You can make more. Well, that's headway. a very Elon Musk comment. Right. <laughs> right. So I think, you know, I'm not I don't think you want to have the metric straitjacket on from day one. But I do think that at some point with startup engagement and all other kinds of innovation, the CFO or COO or someone in a business unit is going to say, like, wait a minute, how are we measuring that and how is it creating value? And so I do think you want to be able to make the case that, hey, we're 
finding new products from the startup world that we can put into our product pipeline. You know, maybe we're licensing them or distributing them and it's has a brand halo or it makes the customers happy or it's adding features and services that we don't have to build. And so our NPS score is going up. I do think you need some kind of quantitative metric at some point that's more than how many meetings did we have with startups or how many tours did we go on with the executives to Boston or to Silicon Valley? Yeah. Well, I think the the key part there is how do you make sure you're getting your peers to respect what you're doing and mm-hmm. not be able to look at it and go, oh, that's cute startup stuff that you're doing. Yeah. If it's just it's the startup petting metrics, zoo, right? <laughs> yeah. It's got to be real metrics about the business that they can look at you as that's business building versus fluff. Yeah. And there's probably like, you know, it's probably important to acknowledge that like there's always going to be a little bit of conflict between like your engineers or your branding people or your R&D people and the startups you're interacting with. Like they're going to have different visions of the future and like what technology standard is going to win out and how shopping habits are changing. And like that conflict is okay. But I think the whole point of startup engagement is to say like, hey, we're we have a portfolio here. We're hedging our bets. There are lots of possible futures that technology could head in and consumer preferences could head in and society as a whole could head in. And let's have, you know, let's have some chips on a few different numbers on the roulette table here. Yep. No, that's perfect. Well, it was a pleasure talking with you. I really take love you taking the time and appreciate it. If somebody wants to learn more about Innovation Leader, where should they start? Well, the worldwide internet is always a really good place. So we're at innovationleader.com on uh Twitter, we're at InnoLead, and we have an email, uh, sorry, an email list and a podcast of our own that's called Innovation Answered. So those are all good ways. Perfect. Well, thank you much, and uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Cool. Thanks a lot, Dave. Talk soon. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.